I see us as doctors. I see us as attorneys. I see us as professionals who the, the lay person is coming to us for our services. And we have a moral obligation to tell them what, that what's be, what is best for them. It is not our more, we, it is immoral, I believe, to exploit ignorance in the market. One of the things I'm kind of worried about is on the Rockwell video, right? Oh, there's my face again. I'm going to get picked on. All right. This same man, he said, hey, you know, thanks for your valuable information. I may have a naive question, but I'm still going to ask. What if Rockwell, Siemens, and other such companies adopt open architecture? Then would the role of the system integrator, just as yourself, diminish or become less valuable? Or to say in a direct way, will you get less money for the work as everything will be easy to set up? Now, again, that is the short-sighted view. Okay, so there are integrators out there who see it that way. But we've been since we started this company. So that's since Intellix been in business for five years, uh, almost six years now. Right. We've taken this approach. Okay, if you look at our growth in six years, we went from nothing to the most famous systems integrator on the planet. Everybody knows who we are. Okay, Uh, if you look in most impactful. Right. Yeah. Most impactful. Right. We have the highest name recognition. Right. I mean, we have, you know, you, you know, if you people, people say Intellic and everyone knows who we are. If you look at the clients we've worked with in six years from kickoff to today, our client list, if you look at the 113, 14 accounts we have now, they are, a, they're a veritable, veritable who's who across the globe. There are small mom and pops we work with. There are mid-sized companies and there are huge enterprises that we work with. We've taken this approach from day one and our model scales way faster. Our engineers make way more. We, our projects have a much higher impact. And so we're proof that no, it doesn't diminish the role or make it less profitable. Give you What it does is it shifts what it is, the focus, the stuff that you work on. So if you look, somebody replied, thank you for the comment. We're going to follow up. And I said, the role shifts from building single applications and connecting solutions together in a single plant to building IIoT ready nodes, machines and software, while converting data into information for the entire enterprise. Systems integrators aren't good at these discrete connections. By the way, the stuff that integrators have been doing, they haven't been doing very well, which is the reason industry 3.0 is a pejorative term now. Okay. It's the reason that when you say that's an industry 3.0 integration, it, it stings. Okay. They, they haven't been doing this very well. It's not like, it's not like integrators have been doing a great job at this stuff. Right. Integrators are really good at turnkey automation. Like if you look at the industry 3.0, it's the turnkey automation, you know, treat the line as an individual unit functional acceptance testing, building panels, configuring drives, connecting the drive into the SCADA system, building SCADA systems. That is where the, the systems integrator stops being good. Right. All the other stuff, the business intelligence piece, this convert, you know, I hate the term convergence of IT and OT, but all the, the business intelligence piece, taking all that data that integrators create from the stuff that they're good at and turning it into information to make businesses more efficient. Integrators are not good at that. I mean, I, I review many, 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 many projects. If you look at, you know, there are three systems mm-hmm. integrators in the United States. There's one on the East Coast. It's easy to figure out who these guys are. There's one on the East Coast. There's one in the Midwest. And there's one in the West. I have reviewed for all three of those companies. I have reviewed at least 50 projects. 
not for each company, but total. I have personally reviewed. There are some things about their projects that impress me. And then there are things about their projects that absolutely do not impress me at all. Okay. The first of which is all three of those big companies sell customers licenses they don't need. Many licenses they don't need. Okay. It's a vendor many agreement. modules. Many modules. It's a competition now. It's a competition now, right? They, they sell the customer licenses they don't need. No matter what company you are, Tats, if you look at Tatsoft, right? Factory Studio, you know, we're listed as the number one integrator. You know, if you go to their page, we, we return first, right? That's by design. We were the first ones certified in the platform, all that stuff. There is absolutely no quid pro quo with Factory Studio. The only reason we agreed to do that is because they don't ask for anything in return. Nothing. Right. The, the well, limit, we, the li- we like seeing people adopt their software and we don't ask for anything in return. We don't ask for, there's nothing in return. There's nothing behind the scenes, some type of relationship where we're getting a greater discount or they're feeding projects to us. We don't do that. Okay. We don't, we could, we remain impartial. And the reason we remain impartial is because our independence, just like when FreeWave reached out to us about, Hey, will you review the zoom edge? You were on that. I think you were on right. that call. Vaughn was. And I said, I'm happy to do it, but you guys need to understand, I'm going to tell you the truth and, you, and you'll have no input on what we put in the video. What you can do is review it before we post it so that you're prepared, but you need to understand we remain impartial. I assure you that those three companies, those three integrators who are like top ignition integrators, one in the East, one in the Midwest, and one on the West Coast, they are not impartial. Not only are they not impartial, they're not even remotely impartial. Yet what you've got is the integrator and the vendor working together, okay, working together to maximize license sales and for the integrator to maximize project the project sale. Their goal is to make sure you are not bidding against another integrator. So how do we combat that? Because in a way, this conversation right here, we win our projects. Okay, I, I can't. You know, over the last four years, I don't always know. The client sometimes tells you, you know, when you're bidding, you know, most of the time we're not bidding against somebody. Okay. But in, in basically every case where we are bidding against somebody, we may know we're bidding against somebody. We may not. They may tell us. We don't know. We don't try to find that information out. I worked for a couple of other integrators who were both elite integrators, both CSIA companies, all that stuff. And, you know, and I was appalled at the sales process. I, I was appalled. It was like, because I see us as doctors. I see us as attorneys. I see us as professionals who the lay person is coming to us for our services. And we have a moral obligation to tell them what, that what's be- what is best for them. It is immoral, I believe, to exploit ignorance in the market. So, I think that is immoral. And so, so let, me, let me say, so when people do bid against us, we we almost always win. I, and by almost always, I can't think off the top of my head where we've lost against anyone head to head in any situation in six years, in the mm-hmm. hundreds and hundreds of projects we've done, I can never recall losing head to head against another integrator. And those three companies that I just listed, the company on the East coast, the company in the, in the Midwest and the company on the West coast have never beaten us head to head ever. In fact, when they know that we're, they're going to bid against us, they don't even bid anymore. Because most of the time, our price is a third to 40, 50%. You know, it's a third to half what their quote is. And that's not because the quality of our work is shit. 
It's because yeah. we take it. It's because well, and, we take a different and because approach. Because the customer, uh, we're fully transparent. You can go on our YouTube channel. You see all of our ideas, all of our thoughts. Like if yep. you're a customer and you're comparing your bid or a 4.0 solutions integrator bid, right? Whether it's Intellic or one of our partners and 4.0 mm-hmm. solution partners, you know they know that it's going to meet certain requirements. It's going to be technology driven, right? Report by exception, edge driven, lightweight, um, edge driven. And, you know, it's going to be, you're not going to be like being charged for things that you don't need, right? We don't have this partnership with any one particular platform, right? So anyone who's a 4.0 integrator, they're going to essentially be able to leverage our, our equity with that we've built with the company because they, they're buying, you know, they're, they're buying into our values, right? They're, they're becoming part of the ecosystem. They're contributing. And and when you, and when you come across an integrator who has been, their people have been trained by us. Okay. So if you look, you know, through the mentorship program and through digital mastermind and, you know, through the intellect.online platform, you know, we are training other integrators, engineers. And in some cases we are partnering with those integrators. So we have partners all over the world that we're working with where we're training their engineers, we're training their project managers. You know, that if you're working with those people, they are taking the same approach we are because the first thing that we tell we, when the integrator approaches us and says, Hey, I, you know, I want you to teach us how to do this, how to do what you guys do. And, and yes, we're going to continue doing what we're doing, but we want a backup plan, right? We want to, when, as things, as, as adoption of IOT and industry 4.0 gets broader, I, I want to have a plan. I want to have my people ready. If they say that they've been trained by us and they're from our, they came out of the Intellic integration school or the 4.0 solutions school of systems integration, then you can trust that they also share our values. Because that's the first conversation we have. I mean, before we ever talk about anything, what I, we have a conversation about values and, and what is it you're in this for, mm, right? 4.0 I mean, 4. 4. system integrator. Right. If my, if my doctor told me, if I sat down and I said to my doctor, hey, you know, why did you become a doctor? And they, and they told me, well, because I wanted to get into a specialty where I could maximize my billable rate for my 15 minute office visits. So I wanted, I wanted to get into a specialty where I, I was making $500 every 15 minutes that I sat with a, a patient. And I, I, you know, if they told me that I wouldn't go to that doctor, I, I wouldn't do that. If I go to, if I went to an attorney and said, why did you go into law? And you know, why are you a corporate attorney? For example, oh, well, you know, it was like, I, I, I had a bunch of debt when I came out of law school out of Cornell. And so I decided to go work for a huge firm. It, you know, I drive a dope Rolls Royce. I, you know, at this point, I've got a bunch of juniors billing, billing around me. You know, if they said that, I wouldn't hire that lawyer. What I'm looking for when I go to the doctor is I'm looking for the doctor to say to me, you know what? I think that medicine's fucked up in the United States. I think it costs too much. I think there, I think that there's a better way to do this. And by the way, my personal doctor, she's one of those people. She is one of the, she leverages, te- leverage technology way before other doctors did virtual office visits and all this kind of stuff, because she saw that there was a problem with medicine. My attorneys, the law firms that we have on retainer, they are all values-based companies. They know that they got mortgages to pay and, and kids to feed and all that kind of stuff and put into college. And, but they're not looking for the biggest damn nest egg in the world. Our attorneys create guys broke off. And why? Because he wanted to help businesses become more financially stable over the long term by leveraging investments. You know what I mean? 
It's like you, you, you want values-based people. I, I can tell you when I go talk to a traditional integrator and I make my pitch and, Hey, you know, you can, you can still be profitable and be values-based and they kind of roll their eyes at me. You know, I tell them to fuck off and I leave. Uh, honestly, I do. I, and, and, and if you at, if you go and you talk to people, what's Walker's approach and bedside manner and all that kind of stuff. If you want to make a difference, if you're the type of person who wants to make a difference, that is, you know, you're the person who's running into a fire when everyone else is running away. If you are the type of person who doesn't see the world as a zero sum game, if you're the type of person who sees prosperity, if you've been blessed with prosperity, that's a responsibility, not a blessing, not just a blessing. Um, mm. If you're that type of person, then you're going to, you are going to love me and you are going to love our company. However, if you see the world as a zero sum game, if you use Adam Smith as justification to exploit people who haven't been as prosperous as you are, if you are comfortable lying to people's faces, you are going to fucking hate me because I am going to call you out, period. I'm not going to be polite about it. I'm going to tell, I'm going to say to you, you are part of the problem. I'm going to say it. I'm going to say you, you know, you are part of the problem in our society. You are part of the problem in our, in industrial automation. You, you, the way you think is part of the reason why companies spend far too much. They're spending double and triple on their automation projects that where they should be spending a third simply because you fail to lead. And here's the problem. Here's the problem with making a customer pay a million dollars for a project they could get for 400,000. And by the way, these are real numbers. We're doing a case study on a project where we fully digitally transformed a, a full organization. It's a single plant, but it's a big, big facility, highly regulated industry. We're doing a case study. And when we show you the numbers, you're going to shit. It's going to totally change the way you think about digital transformation going forward. But if you're, the, here's the problem with charging a million dollars for something that you could do for 400,000. That's $600,000 of capital that client no longer has to invest in, fu in future improvements. That's not right. a partnership. Okay. That's not a mutually beneficial relationship. That's exploitation, pure and simple. That's what it is. We're all in this together. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And there's plenty to go around. And if, and if we all take the approach, the correct approach here, which is what is my role in the community, right? I'm, I'm one part of a much larger whole. What's my role here? How can I can contribute? right? How can I contribute and still have my income be commensurate with my merit, my value, yeah. right? Right. And, and if, you can't make a good income. So if you absolutely. want to 10x, 10x your income, don't 10x your income by doing 10x less and then do, your, you do it by doing 10x more. Like if you're going to give, you're going to charge your customer $10, give them something that's in excess of value of $100. So you can Here. easily charge them $10. This is what I would say. I would say that if your margins in your projects are, if, you, if your margins are such that you would be embarrassed to share that margin with your customer, then your margin's too high, okay? If our clients ask us, what's the margin on the project? We'll show it to them. Calculate it right in the box. There, it's right there, man. I'll tell you, our, our target's 52%, okay? Our margin target is 52%, gross. Mm. So this was going to come up to a question where how do you answer the industry 3.0 inequality versus the industry 4? Because there's going to be industry 4.0 integrators that are going to start to become more and more profitable and industry 3.0 is going to become less and less profitable. 
let's look at industry 3.0. What is, uh, so, you know, I'm a, I'm a economic libertarian. Okay. So that's what I am. I go to the school, the Milton Friedman and Thomas Sowell school of economics. Okay. Friedrich Hayek school of economics. That's where I go. And here's the basic premise. Okay. Number one, all human beings act in their own interest, their own self-interest. Okay. Which is true. Number two, any economic construct that we create, any society, any government that we create needs to be built on top of the fact that people look out for their own self-interest. This is why socialism doesn't work. Socialism feels good. They're great ideas, but it doesn't work in, in practice because it, it, what it says is, is that human beings are inherently selfless, right? Or if it doesn't say that, what it says is, is that the, we can use government to make people selfless, which right? is Re using guns and it doesn't work. Right. That, that means that what you've got to do is person A takes money from person B and gives it to person C. And and in no time in human history has that ever been effective. It doesn't work. So I go from the school of, you know, we have to understand that people operate in their own self-interest and our society needs to be built on top of that. I also, as a sociologist, I agree with David Brooks, who just recently wrote a book called The Second Mountain, that says that we all climb two mountains in our lives. The first mountain is when we're looking out for our own self-interest. Okay, that is, we we're looking for economic and socioeconomic stability, creating our career, building up that nest egg, and we start climbing the second mountain. And the moment we realize we've made it, we I've got enough money, I have enough capital, I have enough success, my brand is strong enough where I can't. I'm not going to go broke. I I I'm. I've broken free of the constraints uh, where I'm, I'm in the rat race, right? Mm. And so now in the second mountain, what I do is I start searching for meaning. Mm. And, and most of the time, if you look at Bill Gates right now, this is where he's on his second mountain. It, Carnegie, you know, uh, Rockefeller, you name it. Musk. When they're climbing, right, Elon Musk, when they start climbing their second mountain is when they start making a difference, right? Mm -hmm. Well, that's part of the human experience. That's not unique to chief executives. It's part of the human experience. And everyone I know who becomes a gazillionaire, with the exception of the psychopaths, <laughs> right? With the, and some of them are psychopaths, right? But with the exception of the psychopaths, when they start climbing their second mountain, it's all about impact and making a difference. I believe that you don't have to climb two mountains. That's the difference. The difference is, is I believe you can climb both mountains at the same time. Okay. I do believe you have to pass a certain threshold. Uh, of socioeconomic stability to start climbing, you know, to finish climbing mountain one and start climbing mountain two at the same time. I believe that's what I believe. I also believe, I believe that you can be a moral human being. You can be a moral business person and be incredibly successful. Not many executives believe that. I promise you. Most executives, the vast majority, and I sit on several courts. Why, why you know, do you sit, think that is? They've been conditioned. They've been conditioned that life is a zero sum game. They've looked at, you know, GDP per capita in the United States and they see it's $58,000 a person. They look at GDP per capita across the globe and it's $17,000 per person. And they say, and, and what they say is that means zero sum game. Let's say that we, we go ahead and we actually 
be altruistic and and we take the wealth in the United States and and we start creating a structure through, you know, democratizing information and data right across the globe. What's going to happen is the GDP per capita in the United States is going to go down and over the and over the rest of the globe, it's going to go up. I disagree. I believe that what can happen is the GDP per capita can go up across the globe at a faster rate than it goes up in the United States. Right. And and you can and you can not get to equality of outcome, which is not right. what we want, but we can get everyone past that minimum threshold so they can start climbing mountain one and two together. Well, and this is the whole automation principle. Automation doesn't kill jobs. It creates jobs. Right. Or but, globalization but, doesn't hurt our GDP. It allows it to scale faster. So what's, so what's wrong in systems integration? What is wrong in software development for the OEMs, right? What, what, why is Rockwell the way they are? What is wrong with the integrators that I've been hi- highlighting here? What's wrong with the way that they are? And the answer is leadership. They have the wrong leadership, okay? There, there's, a, you know, there's an integrator, a, a US integrator, who you know, has a really strong brand, that pretty traditional industry 3.0, do a lot of business intelligence. Their chief executive, who I've met with many times and have heard him speak and read a lot of his writing and overheard him in conversations, and I've had face-to-face conversations with him. He's one of the worst human beings I've ever met in my entire life. And he is the quintessential, says one thing, you know, he, he's the quintessential executive where he says one thing to his people to keep them happy. You know, he talks just completely full of shit. And then and then he goes and he smokes his cigar and drinks his brandy with his other business buddies and talks shit about the proletariat. He that's who he is. He is a horrible, horrible human being. And most people who come in contact with him aren't going to ever get to see that that side of him. The advantage that I have in my role is because I'm an executive, because I own so many companies, I come, in, I come into contact with lots and lots of business leaders. And they think, all bi- bi- many business leaders think that they're on a different team. And when they get together, you know, over scotch and, you know, when we're sitting down at the table, you know, it's like, uh, it's like when you, you know, in the old days when you used to hang out with people and they'd start talking because there was no minorities around, you know, they would think it was acceptable. It's the exact same thing in, in business leadership. You do not have the reason that Elon Musk gets look at how the, the media treats Elon Musk. OK, right. Does the media hold him up as like the golden boy? Hell no. They think he's insane. And, and they and 18 months ago, they were doing everything in their power to get him ousted from Tesla. Right. Today They're he's like second. everything oh he failed his projections it's a Right. Mess. Today he's the t- today Tesla is the gold standard for industry 4.0 manufacturing and he's Do they the have second the holy the holy grail. Pretty close. They don't have the holy grail. They're not they don't have the AI component for the manufacturing piece. They still have human beings doing the artificial intelligence but they're leveraging the machine learning. But the framework and, is there. They're doing right, the it frameworks the, there. The driving, right? And they're but they're they they are so far ahead of everyone else in their manufacturing strategy. So far ahead, it's crazy. You want to know why Elon Musk talks about artificial intelligence all the time and how it's the greatest threat to humanity? Because he's been implementing artificial intelligence in his manufacturing facilities and with his equipment. I mean, he with his products, you know what I mean? It's like he's that close to the technology. Go ahead and say AI to any other CEO of any large manufacturer and their fucking eyes glaze over. Mm. They have no idea what AI does. 
They have no idea. They can't even tell you what digital transformation is, for God's <laughs> sakes. Okay. My point is, is that when you are, you know, you can say that Elon Musk is a lot of things, but one of the things you can't say that he is, is driven by profit. That he isn't risked, when he climbed his first mountain with uh, Zip2, his internet yeah. publishing company. I think he made like 10 or $20 million before this is before he went to PayPal. Well, yeah. So then he went to go PayPal and made like $200 million. He risked all of that to do SpaceX. So he climbed his first mountain and then he put it at stake for Tesla and SpaceX. And yeah. And he, and, and, and what you can't say is that he's, to do that. Yeah. His, his whole life will be changing the world, you know? And, and if you look at jobs, jobs never bought a couch for God's sakes. <laughs> I mean, seriously, he had this huge, he never registered any of his vehicles. He never, he was constantly known for driving around Cupertino in a brand, you know, he'd get a new Mercedes every year and never put a license plate on it. You know what I mean? And I guess California's got some weird law where like, you don't have to have a license plate for the first year or something stupid. I don't know what it is, but <laughs> I mean, the, the guy wasn't interested in, you know, he, again, he wasn't, although he did rip people off when he was climbing, when he was climbing his first mountain, he took advantage of Wodge. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? He, but that was because he felt that he needed the capital to, to capture his vision. Mm. But I mean, the guy, you can't argue that what Steve Jobs did was chase the bottom line so that he could live in a dope house and you know drive amazing vehicles and, and take a helicopter back and forth to work because the guy was a workaholic until the day he died. And he never <laughs> bought a couch, for God's sakes. He never even furnished his house. If he did buy a couch, he wouldn't build a wall on top of it. That's right. That's exactly it. And And so that's... You know, and, and, you know, this is a huge diatribe, but what it boils down to is this. Industry 4.0 professionals are people who see opportunity where other people see risk. Industry 4.0 professionals are people who see an expanding market where other people see a contracting market, right? Industry 4.0 professionals, are they see the, they don't see opportunity cost they see opportunity revenue. And what I'm, what I'm trying to do, you know, we had this call with one of the integrators that we're training, you know, br bringing up the other day and, and he, we're getting ready to meet with a huge global company and a highly regulated industry. And they've asked for me to sit in on this call with them. And, you know, in a lot of the conversations we were having or the questions he was asking was, well, what if this happens or what if that happens on the call? And my answer was, it means they're not ready. End of conversation. You know, see you later, guys. I mean, I have no problem telling an organization, in my professional opinion, you guys aren't ready. You know, don't waste your money. I don't have any problem doing that. And in fact, I do it all the time. And in the business development people will, they're like, what? You know, they're conditioned to try and get every single sale. That's, that's not my attitude in any way, shape or form. I want the right sales. I don't want every sale. I don't even want 70% of the sales. I would much rather get one out of nine out of a hundred opportunities and have that one be absolutely right. And when we right. show you guys the case study, when we show you this case study of this client that we converted right. over the last two years, and we tell you how much we spent and we tell you the approach we took or how much they spent, well, even how much I spent because I spent it up front, I paid for the pilot. When we tell you the approach we took, it's going to fundamentally change the way everyone looks at digital transformation and all the methods they use to convert organizations. It's going to change. It's going to fundamentally right. change the way. And, they look and at that it. was the one out of a hundred. And if you were busy with the other 99, you would have never had the time to invest the innovation in that one. 
There are two. So if you look, we, we generally have one really large enterprise customer at a time. Sometimes we have two, but generally we try to have one. The large enterprise customers suck the life out of you. It's the, the, the enterprise customer sucks the life out of your employees. You know, if you look at the really huge organizations, the really massive manufacturers, I say this all the time, they are operating with the middle 40%. The top 30% all quit and go into business for themselves or go work for, you know, a, a company that's going to give them the freedom to try new ideas. They fire the bottom 30% and they're left with the middle 40, Okay. Well, the problem is, and there's a good thing, the, high, the upside of the middle 40 is they don't rock the boat too much, right? The downside of the middle 40 is they don't rock the boat too much, okay? So you, it's easy to go down the wrong path and keep going. You know, it's that, it's that a crisis of inaction, right? Or analysis paralysis is what you get with that middle 40. Now, that's not to diminish. If you work for a large manufacturer, I'm not saying you're mm. part of the problem. What I am saying is if you're in the top 30%, you're going to leave eventually. You will not yeah. retire from there. That's, that's how you what get I, that's 10 what I mean. years. That's how you wake up one day in your manufacturing world and realize you're 10 years behind the technology, right? You get, yep. a digital, you get a digital assessment. You realize, hey, I'm like industry 3.2 right now, right. you know? And, and you don't want to get... And we, so we generally have one large enterprise customer at a time. And, you what, know... What and have those, their scores been? Like just you know, on, you know, the 3.00 to 4.00 scale. All right. So, um, all right. So customer number one, our very first enterprise customer was like a 3.2, 3.3. They were getting ready to throw their digital transformation away. They had a completely different integrator. They told, they brought us in to do a, a last evaluation. This was six years ago to do a final evaluation and give them a recommendation. Should you throw it away? Should you, you know, what should you do? And when I met with their, the CEO and the chief financial officer and their chief operating officer in the final meeting of that engagement, I asked them on a scale of one to 10, how with 10 being get rid of it, where are you right now? And I got two tens and one eight. And by the way, Jason Coop was in this meeting with me, Jason Coop from, I can't remember his company now, but he used to be with Cephasoft. And he's out on his own now. But Jason Coop was in that meeting with me. And we got two tens and one eight. And so that means two of the executives were ready to cancel digital transformation altogether. And was the their chief, platform ignition? It was. And the chief operating officer was an eight out of 10. And we said, don't do that. <laughs> let's do this. Here's our recommendation. Me and Jason... Well, let's do this. You'll have because Jason Coop, for those of you who don't know, he's probably the world's foremost authority on MES systems in uh, globally. And absolutely, he is the world's foremost authority on MES systems built in ignition. Okay. We if have you him look on our podcast. Right. If you look at the Sepasoft starter kit that Sepasoft gives you, that was developed by a combination of my team and Jason Coop. Jason did probably 70% of it, and our team did about 30% of it building that that template. Jason and I used to work together in a previous life for an, a, a common systems integrator. He and I, we split off together. He went to Cephasoft and I started my company. And, and we're friends to this day. And we were, we were talking to this customer and we said, you know, let's do this. Instead of throwing it away, let's do a little small pilot on, on one of the areas that you've never, you haven't touched yet. Okay. And, and ideally we would pick the most difficult process. Okay. So that process was an injection molding machine. They were making connectors 
before, uh, electronic connectors. And it was an injection molding machine that they could never successfully integrate with. Part of the reason they could never successfully integrate with it, it was because they had a controller, an embedded controller for the molding press that was a proprietary controller. They, the only office that they had was in, I think, uh, LA, downtown LA, and they wouldn't even return calls anymore. So we couldn't get, how do we talk to it? You know, what registers are available, blah, blah, blah. So they, they let us do this project. They say, okay, we'll, we'll do a pilot. And that pilot was in the Midwest. And, you know, Jason and I went out there together. And I think there was another engineer we brought with us. Jason and I are the ones who did the bulk of the work. This is like six, seven years ago, give or take. And what I did was I sent somebody from my office to downtown LA to knock on the door of the embedded, the, the company's embedded, you know, who owned the controller and somebody answered and we said, we need your help. And they're like, ah, oh, we're going under blah, blah, blah. You know, it's like one of those situations, like, you know, where we've stopped responding to support calls and all that jazz. Anyway, we, we ended up getting the register map. We go back up, we do a MES integration, myself and Jason, I think we did. We got the registers and, and Jason and I took about eight weeks and, and we did a full MES integration on this machine. We were able, once we were able to show them OEE and they saw they were running at like 12, 13%, you know, they're, when they saw the, all of the actual micro stops that they actually had, they were able to vastly improve the, the efficiency of the equipment. From there, we got some uh, buy-in, got some initial buy-in. And then we started doing their whole, that whole Jason left and it was just me. And actually this was uh, the first Intellic client, our first major uh, client. And we just, we worked with them for two years it was, we did, you know, Costa Rica, we did China, we did the United States, central server ignition, MES, the whole deal. It was getting to the point where we knew we were going to be there forever. And, you know, eventually when you're doing digital transformation, you may be the right company to come in and save it. You may be the right company to get the framework in place and design the architecture. You may be the right company to do the proof of concept and, and the pilot. You may be the first one to, you may be the right company to start doing global scaling. But you eventually get to a point where the customer needs to take over most of the work. And we generally try to do that in phase three, phase four. And that's where we got to that point. So what we decided was let's find a, a local integrator with these guys. And that was two years in. We found a local integrator that was a couple hours north of where their corporate headquarters were. And what we did was I went and met with that integrator, one of their engineers. I met with their president and told them, hey, you guys really should learn Ignition. You should support it. I'd like to use this engineer on another enterprise project I've got in Tennessee and I'll train him how to do this. And so that's what we did. We went to Tennessee. We did a pilot for our second major enterprise customer. And I started teaching them how to do it at the same time. This guy, this engineer was starting to go through ignition training, all that kind of stuff. I met with their president. I didn't really like their president very much. You know, he was a profit driven guy, you know, blah, blah, blah. But he jumped in, he went to ICC, he jumped in with ignition and we got to a point two years in where we could hand things off to them. So we finally, the client asked us to do another project. And, and what we did was we said, we're here to support you if you need our help, but we don't think you need us now. We've trained this we other talk, company. We talked right. about this in our podcast. Number one, I think where you right. gave the integrator, to, you created yeah, so a market we, where a market didn't exist. Right. So we, we handed the account to that integrator and then we moved on to this other enterprise account. So then for the other enterprise account, they were like a 3.0 out of four. I mean, in fact, they weren't like, they were 3.0, basically all paper, all. And I have a OE, I have an MES case study on this enterprise client. We're still working with these guys. So we've been 
scaling back and not quote, you know, they, they had a huge project that they asked us to quote last year and, and we did the walkthrough and, and we told them we weren't going to quote it. We we're just going to let, you know, you had other integrators, you don't need us to do it. It's not, this isn't something that only we could do. So have somebody else do it. And we're, we're just getting ready to break off that, that relationship with this customer, but they were a three. We did a huge under the radar MES system on a brand new production line or not a brand new, it was a existing production line. And I'll, I'll share this case study, you know, crazy numbers, right? They were producing like 30,000 units. Uh, we did a nine month case study. I have all these charts. They were producing like 30,000 units when they started after nine months, they were doing 70,000 units a day. They we had about like this in mentorship, right? They had like 16,000 units of waste per day. That was down to like 700. I mean, it was crazy. It was a $25 million swing in profit just by virtue of doing that transformation. And then they created a North American digital transformation team, used that money to, to fund it. And, right. and we're, get, we're moving away from them. And then, so they were a 3.0. They're probably like a, I'm going to say 3.6, 3.7 now. Okay. And they're ready to take it the rest of the way. That initial, initial customer, that, that's already been done as a case study. They were 3.3. They're definitely like a 3.7, 3.8. Mm -hmm. I know they're doing machine learning mm -hmm. now. And then the and, last- and For anyone listening, yeah. you're, you're saying 3.7, 3.8, but when we are actually working with a customer, that's a hundred point scale. So you'll know exactly- Right. Because uh, we've been talking about this as part of our digital assessments. And this is kind of what you were saying, you know, instead of working with a customer and then phasing them out in phase three or phase four with an integrator, what if we accelerated that transformation worked with an integrator partner during phase one, where we help them develop their roadmap for phases, you know, for their transformation. We architect the solution with one of our integrator partners, and then they develop phases. The biggest one, two, challenge three. you run into with integrator partners. Okay. This is the biggest challenge you run into. Not everyone is in the values. Right. Not everyone's values based. So you got to make sure everyone, you know, that the mission is more important than the bottom line. Okay. Number one, it doesn't mean that the bottom line doesn't matter. It means that the values have to take precedence. All right. That's number one. Number two, most strategic partnerships between systems integrators do not survive the first challenge of that relationship. And the first challenge of that relationship is most partnerships start out where it's mutually beneficial, right? Generally, it's the bigger integrator needs some additional labor. The smaller integrator wants to learn from the bigger integrator. It's like this symbiotic relationship. Then what happens is there comes a point where, it, and so each step of the way, it's mutually beneficial right up until the point where one integrator is benefiting far more than the other one. There's some scenario that comes up where perhaps maybe the smaller integrator now be, by virtue of their relationship with the larger integrator and by larger, I don't mean in it's like marketing size. The, I mean, it's like helping right. market the larger integrator or something. R right. The, the, the smaller integrator now gets, you know, originally they partner with the big guy to get opportunities that they wouldn't have gotten before right? Then you get to a point where they're getting those opportunities, but they're still getting them because of their association with the big oh, guy. And but now they're tempted or something, but now they're tempted to, to cut out that relationship. And I can tell you most of the time when I see this, I, I see these types of relationships because they never had the values conversation up front. It, it goes to shit. I mean, and there's like one mm. integrator I can think of one integrator from Canada that has, fuck, man, they've had like a dozen strategic partnerships with other integrators and every one of them well, fell yeah, apart. I mean, we're going to know what our integrator partners, like actual terms of services when they sign that contract, but you know, it's not going to include any quid pro quo. Like we already know that, right? You know, so. the quickest, you know, the fastest way to get rid of systems integrators, 
if you're a customer yeah, if you're the customer the best the best way is is to con, you know get leadership in your organization that understands the value of these types of engineers i i mean i could tell you when you go from when you go from being a plant engineer to going to a systems integrator okay and you know anything whatsoever you're getting a 20 30% pay bump overnight if you play your cards right in the first year you're doubling your salary you're going from 70 75,000 80 85,000 to 125 to 150,000 what the end user should be doing is hiring engineers out of the systems integration world who've started as end users that's what you want. If I'm a if I'm a manufacturer and I want someone to lead up my digital transformation initiative, this is what I'm looking for. I'm looking for someone who started their career as an end user, moved to systems integration and worked in lots of different industries. And then got burnt out or something. <laughs> and then I hired him back and hired him back to work for the end user. The mm -hmm. biggest problem that end users have is there's no cultural diffusion. They know what they know. They don't get exposed to anything else. The end user doesn't allow you to go to conferences because they're afraid you're going to get poached. They They don't let you get certifications and training because they think you're going to leave to go get higher pay. Here's here's a way to solve that. Pay them more. Problem solved, right? The problem is absolutely solved. You know, pay them more. You know, I, I've always been appalled at what plant engineers make. I've always looked and said, wow, that's crazy, man, that you're, you know, that these guys make as little as they do. No wonder they don't know how to digital. I was talking to a facilities. plant engineer. Actually, I met him in Altspace and he works for a, uh, I thought he said Philip 66, but it wasn't an oil and gas company. It was uh, another company that does cigarette manufacturing, I think right. in like South Carolina or something. Anyways, I'm like, hey, you know, you should check out our YouTube channel. And I saw him a few days later and he's like, oh, I checked it out. And he's like, yeah, man, we're doing all that industry 3.0 stuff. Like he literally confirmed to me, he's like, yeah, he's, he explained exactly what we were doing. They don't have that cultural diffusion, you know? And, and it's, uh, I remember, I, you know, I, um, my NDA with Newcore Steel expired a long time ago. So I can tell you my Newcore Steel story. So I worked for Newcore Steel in upstate New York in a great facility. Great people were there. It operated in the fucking stone ages. I mean, just there was an electrician slash engineer who worked. I worked in the rolling mill where we took the billets and turned them into finished goods. But there was an engineer. I can't his name was Dan or something. I, I can't remember. He eventually became a supervisor and stuff. And he thought that he was like fucking elite, like elite world class engineer. And I remember looking at his work. He was a big wonderware guy. He was actually a very good engineer, really good PLC programmer, very traditional industry 3.0 guy. And he built a couple of, I would say, adequate SCADA applications for the melt shop, which is where you melted the, the recycled steel into, into molten, it made it molten so you could create the billets. And it was a shitty process, sucked working over there, hot as hell. In my mind, I look back at him and I think that guy was a five out of 10, right? If I was going to score him on a scale of one to five, he was a two and a half or a three. Most of the guys I worked with were ones, you know, they would be ones on the scale. Mm, okay? So he felt like a 10. He felt like it then. <laughs> there were two guys I worked with. There were two guys I worked with who one and two of them I'm still in touch with to this day who I had a lot of respect for. They got it. They had much bigger visions. They were innovators. They were, you know, and and I I decided every at every stop what I wanted to do. My vision was always I wanted to be able to control the plant from a circular desk. That was the metaphor I would use. And so I was the one who put the entire rolling mill under 100% camera coverage. Well, the process itself, not where all the people walked, but I tried to make it so the cameras only 
covered the whole process. I'm the one who put in the Wonderware historian. I'm the one who built the SCADA system. I didn't get any funding to do it. So I had to figure I, I established a relationship with the Wonderware distributor based out of PA and, you know, got dev licenses and all that kind of stuff and did the full development. And all I did was get shit the whole time I was doing this. There was never asked. My bosses never asked me to do it. I did it on myself to make my job easier and to show value to the customer or to go to my plant. And, you know, all along, I knew I was leaving. I knew that they would never, you know, they were never going to convert, not in that facility. Newcore Steel has some state-of-the-art stuff, but that specific facility was an acquisition by Newcore Steel. So it had like old legacy people there. And if you look- <laughs> Legacy people. <laughs> oh yeah, the people, I mean, you know, Newcore pays a lot of money and it was called Auburn Steel before that. And even then they they paid a lot of money. You had guy, lots and lots of people there, 30 years, 20 years. I mean, people who went to work there, rarely did they leave. I mean, when I left, when I left, I left Newcore Steel to go work in, for a tier one automotive supplier. And when I took that job, I, my pay got cut in half. Everyone thought I was crazy. They couldn't believe that I would leave Newcore Steel to go take half the money. They just couldn't believe I would do that. I went from like 120000 a year to 58.5 or maybe I was in the 60s. But I wanted that experience. And I stayed there a year and a half or whatever. And then, and then I, I left and went to integration. That was my last stop in, with end users. What you see, though, at the end users is a, 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 a lack of innovation coupled with a God complex. So you'll have engineers who work oh, for the end users. Yeah. Because of who, that five in one scenario, right. when a 10 person comes in, they're like, who are you? <laughs> if you go and you take a look, right? If you take a look at where I was. So when I was at Cargill, there were two guys who had God complexes, who controlled all the innovation. They were, these were engineers, electricians, technicians, right? There were two guys with God complexes. When I went to printing, the printing industry, there was one guy with a God complex. When I went to, when I went to Newcore Steel, there was really one guy, there were two, but there was really one guy with influence with the God complex who controlled everything. And when I went to the automotive industry, there was one guy with the God complex. And he was the guy who had built all the assembly machines. It wasn't that they weren't good engineers. It was that when you have a God complex, you believe you're right all the time. And you believe everyone else is an idiot. And so you don't li you don't hear anything anyone else says. You know what I mean? You're like, I don't, I don't have the time to talk to you about innovation, right? And and if you and if you take a look, you know, and so we had a, I mostly we had a question. Yeah, that came up on our YouTube channel, by the way, about innovation. And it, it kind of like baffled me because when someone said, okay, well, why even do this? Like what they said, um, and then the answer was like, well, to, to improve the process, right? To be more efficient. And he's like, well, like how? I'm like, hey, I've I got said, to, uh, I said, if, if you believe everything. I got, a, is, if, oh, I got another go. meeting. I got to drop. All right, man. Um, Make sure this one uh, saves. Yeah. I'll